Parkinson's is a degenerative disease, and we're going to be talking about what it is, who gets it, what causes it, how it's diagnosed, the anatomy, the signs and symptoms, the exercise that is needed for these people with Parkinson's, and how to best treat people with Parkinson's. P Parkinson's disease is the most common movement disorder, secondary to essential tremor and the second most common neurodegenerative disease after Alzheimer's. It's a serious disease and it's becoming more and more prevalent as our environment becomes more toxic. Case study is Charlotte. She has a 29 year old history of Parkinson's disease. She grew up around farming and military test sites. She was diagnosed at the typical age of 54 and she was, is currently 81 years old. Medical history in addition to Parkinson's includes a really nasty history of osteoporosis, which is more prevalent in persons with Parkinson's disease. Her medications are Parkinson's disease related, meaning she doesn't have a lot of heart issues, uh, and she does have anxiety, but that is Parkinson's cause and has medication accordingly. This is Charlotte. My name is Charlotte and uh, Mike asked me to tell you a little bit about my life with Parkinson's. 23 years ago, I was diagnosed as having Parkinson's and it really has changed my life. This is my mom. Charlotte, she's my mama, and she did that video for us about four years ago during a Go Big event. She is my hero, my inspiration for the research and clinical work that I do with Parkinson's, and she keeps teaching me every day about how to live better with Parkinson's. So I just want you to know that I live Parkinson's on both sides of the issue, the clinical side as well as the caregiver and familial side. I also have possibly a genetic predisposition to Parkinson's, so um, I am acutely aware of what I'm studying um, can benefit me. <laughs> so Parkinson, what is it, what isn't it? The way you diagnose Parkinson's is motor symptoms currently, but what they have to do when you start exhibiting the motor symptoms is actually rule out other symptoms as well. So if you have cerebellar signs, or if you have early dementia issues, if you have repeated head injury or prior encephalitis, if you've sustained remission after you've been diagnosed or you stay unilateral for years because Parkinson's is a degenerative disease although exercise can stave off some of the symptoms of Parkinson's it still is progressive unless you're um, taking the neuroprotective medications and exercising super hard the disease will progress from unilateral to bilateral. If you have issues with um, supernuclear gaze, meaning issues in the brainstem, 
uh, and above that area, you are not going to be diagnosed with Parkinson's. You'll be diagnosed with supranuclear palsy. Negative response to a large dose of levodopa. Part of the diagnosis process is to give patients a large dose of carbidopa levodopa and see if they have a response to it. And if you don't, then they might be looking for something else. Babinski sign. If you have upper motor neuron disease symptoms, then that's most likely not Parkinson's disease. So Parkinson's, idiopathic Parkinson's versus Parkinson-isms. Does your patient really have Parkinson's? Let's review. Parkinson-ism is this blanket overall term for all the different types of Parkinson's-like diseases. Remember that 85% of all Parkinson-isms are idiopathic Parkinson's. So the majority of your patients that exhibit the bradykinesia, rigidity, tremor, are going to be idiopathic Parkinson's. 15% of that 85% is familial, in which your family has it and you are most likely to get it. But 85% of idiopathic Parkinson's is sporadic, or we don't know exactly where it comes from. Let's look at the secondary Parkinson-isms over here. You can have injury to your basic ganglia through toxin or metabolic issues, drug-induced problems or trauma. You could have brain tumors and vascular events that will cause you to have a Parkinson-ism in which you have symptoms of Parkinson's, but not the degenerative quality. On this side, you have atypical Parkinson-isms, in which you have multi-system atrophies, you don't want that for sure, or progressive supranuclear palsy, you can have Lewy body dementia, and you can have um, cortical basilar degeneration, and none of these are um, good at all. You would rather have idiopathic Parkinson's. Parkinson's is a progressive disease of the basal ganglia. This is a PET scan in which you can see the healthy subject has intact basal ganglia region in which both sides are equally active. In a persons with Parkinson's, you always have more symptoms on one side because the, symptom, blech, the symptoms start unilaterally. So this person has symptoms on the right side and will always have symptoms worse on the right side than the left, even as the disease progresses to bilateral. Parkinson's disease is caused by a lack of dopamine in the substantia niagara pars compacta. So remember that you have substantia niagara dopaminergic neurons that project here to the striatum, the putamen and the caudate. They project through the basal ganglia and interact with the thalamus. 
And if you have a loss of dopamine, then you have a disruption of the indirect and the direct pathways through the basal ganglia, causing the indirect pathway to have more of an influence. The indirect pathway is the no-go system. So the substantia niagara are found here in the midbrain of the brainstem. And those dopaminergic neurons project here to the striatum, which is the caudate, and the putainment. The putainment is the motor part. So if your motor system is disrupted, then the dopaminergic neurons that project from the substantia niagara pars compacta to the putainment run through this system and then either activate the thalamus to allow it to interact with the cortex or they reduce the activity of the thalamus. The pathological hallmark of the midbrain area is that the substantia niagara pars compacta is dark pigmented in the normal subject and in the person with Parkinson's you can see here that that substantia niagara pars compacta region is no longer dark pigmented and there's scarring in here called Lewy bodies. At the time of motor diagnosis, at the time you're seeing bradykinesia, you have 50 to 60 percent of cell loss. You also have 70 to 80% of dopaminergic terminals that are dead. The cell death precedes the diagnosis by five to six years for sure, and we're speculating even 10 to 20 years. So the nope, normal dopaminergic decline in from birth to death is happening even in the elderly. So we see some shuffling gait and stooped posture even in the elderly. But the decline in persons with Parkinson's is marked and is problematic. Even before the disease is diagnosed with the bradykinesia, you start seeing red flags of non-motor symptoms such as constipation or anxiety or sleep disorders or loss of smell. All of these are non-motor symptoms that are actually occurring prior to the motor symptoms showing up and I'll just explain why this occurs later in the slideshow. Along this dopaminergic decline before the diagnosis occurs, we could be protecting the neurons. We're actually hoping to be able to diagnose back here 10 to 20 years before the motor symptoms actually show up so that we can be protecting the neurons before they start dying. At the time of diagnosis, we're doing a lot of neuro restoration and a little less protection Again, that's why we would like to be able to diagnose this disease even before the motor symptoms start. And then later in the disease process, we're doing lots of compensation because 
later in the disease process you have more cognitive decline and you have um, more motor symptoms, more festination, more freezing of gait. And so our treatment is often compensatory at this time. So who gets it? Age is the single most common risk factor. The older you are, the closer you are to Parkinson's. Typical onset is between 52 and 60, 62. Young onset is between 21 and 44. I've even seen as high as 49. Late onset is later than 78 years of age. Other considerations are at the time of diagnosis, do you have a lot of comorbidities? What was your pre-Parkinson's diagnosis fitness level? What's your motivation and personal goals? How much caregiver support do you have? And your response to med and your response to exercise. Those are all considerations to be made in your ability to combat the progression of this disease. So we want to know who is the most susceptible. Well, worldwide, we have six to seven million people with Parkinson's, and that number is increasing all the time. Just in the U.S. and Canada, we have up to two million persons with Parkinson's. 85% of persons with Parkinson's are over the age of 65. 3% of patients are younger than 65. Men are 1.5 more times more likely to get it than women, although that could just be because more men are exposed to toxins. We don't know that for sure. Uh, the mean age is between 52 and 58, although I've seen that as high as 62. and Again, 85% of persons with Parkinson's are over the age of 65. Well, let's just take that out because we already said it. In Flagstaff, in the greater Flagstaff area, about 25 new cases of Parkinson's would be diagnosed a year. And I'm telling you, that's not happening. In Phoenix, Mesa, and Glendale area, which equals about 100,000 people, we'd have over 1,000 people diagnosed and in our clinics, which is clearly, clearly not happening. And we need to be diagnosing these people and getting them into our clinics as quickly as possible. What causes Parkinson's disease? Well, genetics is actually loading the gun and the environment is pulling the trigger. So my genetics are loaded. My gun is loaded for Parkinson's because my mom has had it. My gun is loaded for Alzheimer's because my grandfather died of it. Woohoo! I think I better be exercising. The environment that I grew up in was a little bit of farming, but uh, now I live in Flagstaff and that's a great environment. So. If the environment pulls the trigger, which for my mom, her environment was farming as well as military test sites. She remembers playing in the white powder in the corner of the barn 
and she remembers waking up in the morning with the the military area that she was in covered in orange powder so she had some exposure the direct pathways from the environment to the brain occur like this our gut down here depicted by down in here is actually gets constipated and and gathers the toxins from the environment that sit in our gut and then inflame the intestinal or the mucosal lining of the intestines and this inflammation burrows its way into the mucosal lining and mutations start to occur in these cells these cells connect right to the brain stem through the vagal nerve through the spinal cord uh, through and sympathetic ganglion all interact with the gut so healthy gut healthy brain means that the disease in our gut is traveling back it's a prion disease it travels back in the proteins of the neuron and it leaves these Lewy body scars along the way hence the prevalence of Parkinson's non-motor symptoms that occur in your system way before the motor symptoms occur in your basal ganglia so you're having sleep disruption constipation you're having uh, loss of sensory or pain sensation um, anxiety depression apathy these things are occurring because as the disease travels back in these neurons it's leaving Lewy body scars when these Lewy body scars get to the substantia nigra pars compacta these cells are just innately vulnerable and start to auto die they start an auto death process that is catastrophic to the basal ganglia and our brain in general there's another pathway that can come right through the nose. That's why we might have a loss of sense of smell that's five, possibly 10 years prior to the onset of the disease. So the toxin from the environment will enter through the nasal mucosa as well and the Lewy bodies can start growing from there killing the sense of smell as well as traveling back to the other areas of the brain and initiating the death of the nerves in the substantia niagara pars compacta. So why do some people get it and some people do not? What causes Parkinson's disease is this natural neuronal vulnerability our genetic predisposition and the environmental lifestyle that we live so if we have poor diet lots of constipation if we're a couch potato if we have lots of stress we are going to have more issues uh, that can lead us to Parkinson's disease so if you have these things that all come together and then you add stress in which your system is more vulnerable to cellular cascade cellular death um, then Parkinson's can occur 
So my mother had some stress in her life. She had a genetic predisposition. She had the environmental exposure. And then she had the death of her son about 15 years before the onset of her diagnosis, which is a huge stressor, as everybody knows. And uh, other stressors occurred in her life, such as divorce, and she was diagnosed at the age of 54. So it's diagnosed by the detection of bradykinesia. You have to have bradykinesia in order to be diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Bradykinesia plus one of these, rigidity, tremor, that's a non-intention tremor, and postural instability. So the clinical diagnosis is this, hopefully not this looking man right off the bat, especially nowadays, but this man has bradykinesia and most likely the picture of this man is depicting more rigidity. He has a tremor depicted by these little wavy things in his left hand and who knows if this man in the picture has postural instability. But along with the bradykinesia, at the time of diagnosis, he's going to have a reduced arm swing on the side that's more involved, which for this man, it's his left side. Micrographia or small writing, hypophonia possibly, a reduced amount of volume while he's speaking, a masked face, shows slow shuffling gait, and a stooped posture. The diagnosis for my mom, she walked into a room uh, full of people with Parkinson's at the neurologist office granted 29 years ago before we even had any type of amplitude therapy like big or power and there's no blood test uh, nowadays we have a DA large T scan a DAT scan that shows dopamine transport at the level of the dopamine uh, that scan can help us sort of rule in the possibility of Parkinson's disease, but it's not doing it specifically saying we have Parkinson's disease. There's no blood tests. Their neurologist does a UPDRS. He's looking at masked face. He's looking for small handwriting. The UPDRS has things like finger tap and it has activities such as pulling them backwards to see if they have retropulsion. There's also, a, at the time of diagnosis, they will do the test and measures and then give you a dose of carbidopa levodopa to see if your symptoms get better. If this happens, then they diagnose you with Parkinson's. Why can persons with Parkinson's look so different from patient to patient? Some patients with Parkinson's have tremor. Some patients with Parkinson's have the dyskinesia, which is a medication side effect. You can have dyskinesias while you're on medications or diphasic dyskinesias when you're on at the medication and that can sort of dissipate and then you can have it when you're off the medications. It depends on the person, but it's a medication side effect. 
You could have dystonia or cramping often in the toes. This occurs. Myoclonus, which is also a dyskinesia. It's the muscle spasm and jerking motion that can occur often in the neck. You can have rigidity, which is just this tightness in mostly in the trunk as well as the extremities. You can have freezing of gait or at least festination of gait. Freezing of gait comes after the festination and it feels like you're glued to the floor. So yes, there's different types of Parkinson's in that it's sort of a garbage cam term. And then there's the tremor dominant, which is what my mom had, and the akinetic or rigid type here in the purple, and a mixed type in which you can have a tremor and be rather stiff or rigid. Depending on which side the Parkinson starts, you can have right versus left-sided involvement. Remember that if you have more of one-sided involvement, you might have more speech problems. If you have another side involved, you might have more perceptual deficits. So people respond differently, and we're going to find that there's more and more types of Parkinson's that occur uh, just like cerebral palsy has different types of cerebral palsy and cerebral palsy just happens to be that overall garbage can term. Factors relating to a more difficult prognosis or harder time with the disease, the older age you are, the more cognitive problems you have, the more core comorbidities you have, if you present with uh, a lot of rigidity or bradykinesia right off the bat, you can have more problems. And if you have a decreased responsiveness to the dopamine, the medication, then you may not have such a great prognosis. My mom had tremor dominant, which actually has a better prognosis than the rigidity issue. The staging is completed by doctors, uh, neurologists, who are going to use a Honan and Yar stage. And uh, this is a little outdated in that we're using more early, moderate, and late symptoms. But it's a five-stage disease. It's a five-stage process with eight stages in it. So there's zero, one, one and a half, two, two and a half, and then three, four, and five. Three is depicted by a little more falling and a lack of recovery on the pull test of the UPDRS. Meaning, if the doctor pulls you backwards and you take more than two steps, that may place you in stage three. 2.5 is bilateral symptoms with the trunk involved and a recovery on the pull test. So in the stage 2.5, you shouldn't be falling. Stage 4, you're still able to walk and stand unassisted, but you're going to be falling a lot and you're unable to live alone. Stage 5, you need a wheelchair or you are living in bed 
you are not moving much at all and if you do move it's unsafe so um, the stage four and five late stages two 2.53 mid stages and overlapping with one to stage two is early stages early stage and we used to move from stage one to stage two within six years. Uh, exercise is now causing us to be able to stave off this progression, which is great. It also used to be known as a forward progressing disease and that you couldn't go backwards, which we have now proven to be wrong. My mom would fall and break something and go into stage three or four and then we would rehab and she would go back to stage two or 2.5. So this model is no longer correct in that it's just a relentlessly progressing disease. Exercise can change that. Let's watch Bernie. Bernie's gonna get out of his car did you see much rotation while he closed that door? No. He's going to be taking those short, fascinating steps. He's not doing much with that cane. Good thing he's got it. Um, one side is more involved than the other. And uh, his wife is like, come on, Bernie, hurry up. We're going to watch this one more time so that you can see the lack of mobility. So this is Bernie. We're gonna name that stage. He's gonna get out of his car, very small, lots of no rotation while he shuts that car door. And he is using that cane sparingly. Let's put it that way small steps and they're uneven right so if we were to pull on Bernie or perturb him or knock into him you can imagine that he would not be very stable I would call Bernie in stage three okay let's go. watch this man So John's doing a timed up and go in which he is uh, having a hard time remembering to turn and he's got that stooped posture. Becky Farley, the creator of Big and Power, is having him walk forward and backwards and get on and off the floor. Uh, just doing an overall assessment of his ability to move. When he turns, he's having difficulty turning. Sidestepping, that stooped posture, lack of fluidity and coordination. He's having to think about all the moves. 
So without pulling on him, you would probably place him uh, a little better than Bernie because he's able to do all this great stuff, uh, but for sure bilateral symptoms, so 2 to 2.5. Let's name that stage in these ladies. Both of these ladies have Parkinson's disease. They're doing the Wii. So both of these ladies are in a different stage and we'll decide which stage that is here in a moment. They have Parkinson's and she does not have Parkinson's. This is at Swan Rehab. So what would you say? What would you say? Who has what disease? What stages? This person, my mama, she's hopping around, uh, trying to get her done, but her movements may not be as big, although those lower extremities were pretty good. Um, this person in the black has larger movements and probably is in a newer stage. She's actually stage one but hasn't started on medications yet. My mom was in stage two and a half at that point but had had lots of rehab and uh, doing okay. Let's watch this man. He's doing sit to stands. and slow movement. This is his nine hole peg test that is as fast as possible with that right side. Through the rigidity, through the bradykinesia, he's working so hard. It looks like he's just acting and moving slowly, but he is sweating. He's working so hard. This is his forward walk test, I do believe. And he's going to do a backwards walk test here. So my student at the Summer Neuro Clinic is making sure he does not fall so I don't kill him. Uh, hopefully he's not getting in the way of movement, but um, the three meter backwards walk test is difficult for persons with Parkinson's. I'm doing the research on the three meter backwards walk test that says persons with Parkinson's who walk slower than 4.8 seconds are at a moderate to high risk of fall. He's going to do the timed up and go and he's going to have extreme difficulty. It takes him a long time and um, he's sort of glued to the floor right now, right? And then he gets going. But this timed up and go is going to take him about five minutes to do including freezing and uh, turning difficulties. When 
people free people freeze more often when lots of people are around so I'm not sure if my student is hindering his movement ability but he is keeping him safe and that's what I need here is a lean test as you can imagine, this is going to be kind of scary. So yeah. hold on to your bootstraps. Jordan is just trying to let him go and he knows if he lets him go that there's not going to be a step. So he keeps him safe and no stepping occurred on that right side. Now on the left side, He's going to actually hold him there long enough for him to produce a slow cross step. But it's sort of a request by Jordan to complete that cross step. We do this forwards and backwards as well. Let's see, that stage was a stage four. Um, possibly a stage three, but he's falling a lot and freezing a lot and is having extreme difficulty walking on his own. This is Willard. He's going to walk into the, my neuro clinic and, um, I'm going to look at, make it look a little smoother than it is, but I'll walk you through it as my biceps are on fire. So I'm walking him into the clinic and I shut the door and he's leaning backwards. If you can't tell, my biceps are absolutely on fire. Willard falls in his home multiple times a day. He crawls on the ground to get to the bathroom in his uh, dirt-covered floor on the Hopi Reservation. His wife goes out for dialysis and he's stuck. He's got to crawl on the ground. He has retropulsion, which means that I am uh, keeping him from falling backwards steadily. You can't necessarily see it until this next activity. <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of coordination. He's going to reach for this far post and it's just too far for him to reach. He's also going to begin to fall backwards and I'm going to catch him. Yay, me. So he's walking upstairs and reaching and I just grab his arm and he starts to fall backwards. Whoa, 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 pile drive, moving them up. Note that the camera never waves. Becky is filming this and she must have a lot of confidence in me because she doesn't run to my aid. She doesn't do anything to help whatsoever. But he doesn't fall backwards and we continue walking forward and all is good. But retropulsion, right? The man has retropulsion. Let's continue watching to make sure I get him in the clinic okay. Yes, we're successful. Woohoo! And we're headed into the clinic. 
So he's in a wheelchair all day long. He knocks his wife over while she's trying to walk him to the bathroom, and it's an absolute mess. So Willard's a stage okay. five as we'll well right as here. Tom is a stage five too. And up. So Tom is One, two, in a group home. He hasn't talked to the facility CNAs um, in six months. The certified nursing assistant who was working with him said to me after a couple of weeks of working with him, I think a total of five times, she rushed out to me in the group home and said, Tom talked to me today. Tom asked me to go to the bathroom. So this is stage five. He was in bed. He had not talked to the nursing staff once in the last six months, they said. And his wife said that she had only gotten a few words out of him. After just five treatments, he was having full conversations with his wife. He was asking the nursing staff for, to go to the bathroom and to get out of bed. He just woke up his system. So uh, he died probably six months after this video. And uh, his wife said in the funeral in a funeral service she you know thanked me for giving her back giving her back her husband to allow her to communicate with him so at every stage we can have an impact common motor symptoms we all know as bradykinesia uh, stooped posture all of that and that's at the time of diagnosis we hope they get referred at that time uh, sometimes though patients are still not referred to us until they start festinating or freezing or falling which is crazy back when I first started teaching a, a big with dr. Becky Farley and now power we were definitely seeing people here at this time of diagnosis that's why big was created at this time, uh, with all of these problems going, BIG was created at this time for the type of people here in this time of referral. Um, but POWER has gone on to work with people who are later in the process as well as early in the process so we can work with them like crazy at all levels of the disease. This is postural instability. This is the pull test. That's Dr. Becky Farley. And this woman has deep brain stimulation, which is, which is fabulous for a lot of people. It reduces the rigidity. It causes more mobility, but it actually makes your balance worse often causes more drooling, causes more cognitive and speech deficits. But for some people, it's absolutely wonderful because they were had so many dyskinesias or so much rigidity that they could barely move. This is classic freezing. This is Ellie. And she's going to do a turn. The reason why she's wearing knee pads is because she 
gets stuck to the floor, glued to the floor, feeling and freezing, and falls often. So she wears knee pads. This is her doing some freezing as they ask her to walk backwards, so she's fascinating a little bit. And Becky's trying to ask her to back up, weight shift, do something to get out of that freeze, and she's having a really difficult time doing anything in order to get out of that freeze. So we've got to actually train her how to get in and out of a freeze, weight shift, and actually not freeze. But retropulsion again, terrifying. Right? How scary for these people. Here's freezing while running. This man's going to run around the trees. He's early onset. He's going to do some festination and there a freeze. This is how he gets out of it. He walks through it, bends over, more running. He's going to uh, freeze, festinate there a little bit on the slope, and then again at that same area, freeze and have more difficulty between the tree and that person. He is a student on the USC campus and he freezes through every door he goes through. How frustrating would that be? Freezing and festination. He said he's taught himself how to fall into the bushes instead of the street, but very frustrating. So after lots of work, he's going to have great success. And the key to freezing is to work hard at not freezing. Freezing is initiated by a cognitive anxiety issue and our feet respond. So the treatment of freezing is to actually give people successful movements in the tight spaces that they're having a hard time and freezing in. And this is rigidity. And if you can let your head hang down on the mat, it's even better. So you're, yep. Let the knees drop so down. His head is up drop again. Down. His knees drop aren't, down. there you Good. go, not moving much. Can you do that with your head down at all? Yeah, you can still look side to side. So he is now. tight. Yeah, and then. She's asking him to do a rotation movement and he's having difficulty you know uh, completing Step with your the rotation bit, motion. 128.25. So let's look at him again. And if you can let your head so look how tight he is, just yeah. not able to lie completely flat on a mat. Let the knees drop down. Now he's doing the motion, but his head's up and he's just really rigid again. Can you do that with your head down at all? Yeah. You can still look side to side. Look to your left now. Yeah, and then to... Camptochormia, this man has bent over posture but actually can lie straight. So it's actually a dystonia or cramping of the trunk. This man 
has got the same extension issue and is bent over due to a cramping, maybe even a, a lack of awareness in the brain of where his body is in space. And he is working with Becky down at the Power Gym in Tucson, where they have over 90 patients with Parkinson's at any given time. And Becky's trying to have him work into extension, practice being extended as much as possible. Success in extended postures. Jim is in a standing frame with a harness, so he's at less risk of fall and hopefully can move more freely uh, without the fear and anxiety of the risk of falling. So Becky's having him in a gray strap and doing some stepping work so that he can feel like he is extended and tall. She had him, um, she has him feeling like, oh, I can move right now and I don't have a fear of falling. Uh, people have retropulsion, so they tend to lean farther and farther forward. And we need to train them that they have the capability to not fall backwards. This man has a trunk cramp, trunk dystonia, in which he is so far, far forward flexed that he can't actually extend his trunk. There is this tightness or lack of ability to work through that cramping or dystonic trunk posture. So I keep having him try to visit an extended posture. He doesn't even have the concept. There you go. See how he falls back down until he gets some ability to hold himself up. You're like taller than Val, and you came in and you were a lot shorter. That was wonderful. Wonderful. Doesn't that feel good? Remember that there are non-motor symptoms and eight out of the top 10 symptoms, most problematic symptoms, eight of the top 10 most problematic symptoms, there you go, 
are non-motor symptoms. So non-motor symptoms include anxiety, depression, and add apathy to that. Cognitive loss, um, dementia, autonomic abnormalities, including bowel and bladder difficulties, sexual problems, short of breath issues, sensory changes, including that loss of sense of smell that I talked about, and pain and tingling, a burning sensation, proprioceptive awareness loss, sleep disorders. These are all very problematic. And in that eight out of the top 10 problems most commonly reported in Parkinson's are non-motor. Secondary impairments include the deconditioning and the muscle weakness not caused by a lower motor neuron problem except for the fact that if you're not using your extension you become weaker. If you're not actively moving your body you become weaker. But Parkinson's pathology itself doesn't necessarily cause weakness. So these secondary impairments are problems that we're treating as well. So the reason why they don't move better, why they don't recognize their small movements, why they're not motivated, why they don't learn as fast or remember what was taught is because the basal ganglia has loops through the system that are responsible for sensory, cognition, emotion. It's just not a motor disease, as I've already explained. So there's cognitive circuits through the caudate nucleus, emotional circuits through the caudate putamen, and um, other nuclei like the nucleus accumbens, and the amygdala at the in the caudate head and tail. There are motor circuits of awareness for proprioception as well. So these circuits that include bradykinesia from the primary motor region and attentional executive functioning problems from this frontal lobe and limbic problems that occur from the cingulate gyrus the limbic system, the amygdala, as well as the head of the caudate, cause depression, apathy, and anxiety. Remember that in Parkinson's disease, you don't necessarily have to be depressed to have apathy. They have a lack of interest in things that they commonly enjoyed, and that's a cause of apathy as well as depression. The basal ganglia also has a homunculus in that there's representation from the leg associated here in the putamen, representation of the arm associated here in the putamen and face as well in the putamen. So these areas all keep things separate and running smoothly but the loss of dopamine causes these circuitry, the circuitry to blend together. So you can see here that Karen is walking with her eyes closed 
and would have walked out the door if I wasn't there to protect her. Uh, let's not leave her and not in power post training. Here she is, eyes closed, walking dead down the center. Yay, Karen. So sensory motor deficits, cognitive deficits, and emotional deficits that we all need to uh, work on in therapy. There needs to be cognitive work, emotional work. They don't have the vigor and the um, energy to get the task done. So we have to be their social reinforcement and help them find their vigor. Parkinson's treatment options, medications, fantastic, as well as deep brain stimulation and exercise. Hopefully we can prevent people from getting a hole in their head if they're doing the right medications and exercise, but in the event that the medication is causing horrible dyskinesias or problems occur, then we can add deep brain stimulation. Parkinson's treatment uh, for a movement disorder special, a movement disorder problem is pretty darn effective. Movement disorders such as multiple sclerosis or a ALS don't have the medication and ability to get better with medication or deep brain stimulation, or for that matter, exercise as well as persons with Parkinson's. So we're going to um, make sure that persons with Parkinson's don't go backwards. Uh, remember, the medication was discovered in the 1950s and, uh, well, 1960s. The drug improved. So the timeline for the last 60 years of Parkinson's disease has been interventions in treatment with visual cues, then medication was induced, and then in the 70s we started saying exercise is not helpful, and then in the 80s we said, oh sure, go ahead and exercise, and then in the 90s we said deep brain stimulation is going to cure Parkinson's, which hasn't turned out to be true, and in the 2000s exercise complements medications, right? And then from 2010 to now, well, research has just absolutely exploded. Visual cues are where we started. Um, visual, visual cues are still effective, and uh, we know that we're able to help people later in the disease process by putting visual cues down on the floor and we'll talk about that in treatment. You can see this man is not medicated. Purdy Martin was doing these tests and measures. He's a physician that was showing that people with Parkinson's actually can get better. It was the inspiration for the movie Awakening. See the man walk over the taller visual cues? That's impressive, watch him stop. As soon as the visual cues go away, retropulsion, and the motor facilitation ceases. And then this is how he moves them from place to place because he's not on medication. I love those films. 
I found them in the archives of Dr. Doug Stewart, who is an amazing man. The medications for Parkinson's are great, but they're a bit like a roller coaster in that they have on and off periods and um, dyskinesias associated with them. And if you exercise with the medications, you can actually not need to take as many medications, which is fantastic because the on and offs of the Parkinsonian medications are problematic. It's good that we have them, but those on off cycles are cause you to struggle and the medications are getting better and better with timed release dopamine and capsules that um, release some dopamine now and more dopamine later. So good stuff happening. We have dopamine agonists and dopamine um, breakdown inhibition. My mom is on sleeping meds and stool softeners and anti-anxiety and a carbidopa levodopa extended release in the form of Ritari every four hours. Um, and this medication works pretty darn well for her. She does have on-off side effects that are frustrating as well as some of the dyskinesias that occur when her medication is optimal. Initially in the disease process, you're going to start out with something that inhibits the breakdown of dopamine, an MAOB inhibitor. Then you're going to add your dopamine agonist, possibly, and then um, for sure, carbidopa levodopa. In the event that people are not moving well, especially for people who are diagnosed with older age onset, I want them on the carbidopa levodopa as soon as possible. Do not delay in putting persons on the medication. That's an older thought that says the longer we wait, the less dyskinesias they're going to have. Uh, that's not true. The people who start on Parkinson's medications now are going to be at the same level that persons who wait to start on the carbidopa levodopa, you know, two to three years down the line. The problem with the dyskinesias is the amount of medication. And if you wait for two to three years, you're going to be on the same amount of medication in two to three years as you would be if you uh, started taking them right away. So please don't tell your patients to wait. We need them, we need them optimally medicated so that we can have optimal movement. Deep brain, brain stimulation is an option where they put an electrode into the subthalamic nucleus and can help you with the motor symptoms, but it does not help you with any of the non-motor symptoms. Deep brain stimulation, this electrode, uh, you're a best candidate if you have the motor fluctuations and dyskinesias that are problematic, but it's contraindicated if you have atypical Parkinson's or if you have cognitive issues because it makes them worse. Side effects can include speech problems, saliva management problems, and worsening of your postural instability. The placement of the electrodes are getting better and better. So person on stimulation, 
versus off stimulation. This person is off stimulation and having a super hard time doing tests on the UPDRS. Becky is showing him tests and measures to do. She's asked him to move his fingers rapidly and as big and rapid as possible. And he's going through that very laboriously. He is having a super hard time moving fast because his deep brain simulator is turned off. Very nice of him to allow her to. So exercise, yes, yes, yes. Let's talk about the type and how much and how often because skilled intervention is necessary. So is aerobic, but skilled intervention is what we need to have them work on their retropulsion and their freezing and the large steps needed for them in order to uh, not have their feet so close together so they can weight shift and rock. So exercise plus medication is better than medication alone for sure. This study shows that people who came in and started a study were going to complete the UPDRS scale as well as other motor scales, exercised for four weeks, and after that exercise, they had better scores on the UPDRS. At the end of one year of not exercising, they went right back to where they were a year ago, but they got better within this time. And at the end of the year, they were taking less medication, okay? This is the control group. So I love this study. This study shows that exercise is medication. So this group started, the exercise group started at the same level as the control group right here in the purple control group, here in the gray exercise group, intervention group. And they both started out the same. After four weeks of exercise, the person's UPDR scores got better, okay? Indicated by this drop in the scores as they got better. They then were asked to not exercise for a year and of course, after not exercising for a year, their scores came right back to where they were a year ago, but they were on less medications. They exercised for four weeks again and dropped right back down to where they were after they had exercised a year ago, even though it's a degenerative disease. In the purple, the control group, no exercise for that four weeks, and after one year, they had gotten worse and they were on 30% more medications than they were at the start. The people who exercised were actually on 50% less medications after that one four-week bout of intervention. Exercise is medicine. So we're going to talk about treatment. If you have someone who freezes at the airport going through the security line, which is nerve-wracking enough, right? Then you need to practice at them working in tight spaces, holding on to their luggage, working hard. If you have somebody who 
needs to walk in a crowd in a movie theater, then you practice them walking in a crowd in a movie theater in small spaces having success, right? Over here, persons with Parkinson's and boxing. These poor people with Parkinson's. Let's make them cognitively work and move. Rocksteady Boxing out of Indiana showed that people with Parkinson's can get